Welcome and bienvenue, everybody, to another episode of Before the Downbeat, a musical podcast. I'm Mackenzie, by the way. And by the time you're hearing this, even though we are recording in August, it will be January. So hopefully you've had a wonderful Christmas holiday, everybody. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, 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 indeed. And once again, as you just heard, we are joined by the wonderful lady of Muskoka, the John Adams of Canadian theater, the Canadian B. Arthur, Autumn Smith. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Uh, doing this on Zoom, I get to see Lynn's reactions, uh, which are phenomenal. Yes. Which leads and- us to introduce our guest. Exactly. Back for her, how many? Four, fourth episode. Uh, on the podcast, Ms. Lynn Slocken. In season two, she joined us three times for 1776, Carousel, and Oliver. And now we're doing your fourth episode, which is, well, Autumn, what are we doing? Life is a cabaret, old chum. Cabaret! The cabaret. What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. Put down the knitting, the book, and the broom. It's time for a holiday. Life is a cabaret. Yes. Right. Yes. Last season, we covered the Candor and Ebb crime musical Chicago. This season, we're tackling their Nazi musical Cabaret. Which is funny. This is our second Nazi musical. Last season, we did the producers with tap dancing Nazis and swastikas and comedy versions of, of these of, of the of these characters. And now this season, we're going the total other end of the spectrum with the darker more realistic take and on on this time superior musical yeah, debatable mm-hmm. debatable i think i think the producer still has, still has merit i know autumn rolls her eyes at me <laughs> so is lynn by the way yes mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. all right there we go Okay, so yes, so yeah, Cabaret, we're doing this little ditty. Autumn, why was this, like, this This in Chicago were two of the musicals that were on your initial list when I said, Autumn, let's do a musical podcast, like, let's do this, and Chicago and Cabaret were, like, in that top 20 musical list you, 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 you listed out to me as, like, shows you wanted to talk about. So why is this on your list, and why do you think it's better than Chicago, as you've stated in our Chicago episode. I say things and I forget I say things. But um, I think Candor and Ebb and the various people that they work with write really interesting musicals because they're, I, I don't want to say they're enjoyable, even though they are. They're very satirical. And it, they, they write biting satire. 
And um, I really enjoy this work because I, I, I'm a huge fan of, you know, Isherwood and his friend, uh, Auden, W.H. Auden. So, and I'm fascinated with um, the rise of fascism, Nazism. I find that mindset, the populist mindset, fascinating, especially given what is going on in our current climate and how we keep cycling back to this place. So I, I like, I like the fact that this piece, you know, deals with apathy, um, and acceptance of, of terrible deeds. Uh, and I, I love that it's told through the cabaret and the cabaret has always been an interesting art form for me. I think, uh, you know, it's kind of like burlesque. It's kind of the seedy underbelly of what popular entertainment is for us now. Um, and I, I like that. I like that kind of dark, dirty, gritty, um, entertainment. I think it's, I think it's revealing. Mm hmm in its like infancy. Yeah. So, you know, uh, and, you know, the, the piece itself um, is based not only on Isherwood, Christopher Isherwood's books, his novellas that were tied together, but also on um, this play. Hold on one yes. second. I am a camera. Oh, it's in here. By I'm John Van Druten. Yes. So that play, I am a camera. Is about a literal camera, but the word cabaret actually is derived from camera. So I think there's a play on that in the actual text of that title, which I find interesting. I am a cabaret. So I am a performance of what is happening in the world. I think I just find the whole thing like there are layers. We could spend 10 hours, <laughs> 10 hours discussing this one piece. It also, uh, and no, I'm not going to spoil it. I'm not going to spoil it. We'll, we'll get to it when we get to my favorite song of this piece. I'm saving myself. All right. Saving myself for my wedding night, as it were. Very good. Very good, darling. Very yes. Good. Lynn, why did you select this musical to be a guest on? Um, I love the... Uh, I love the anger of it. I love the, um, uh, certainly because I'm Jewish and one of the subtext, one of the little themes, sub stories is about a Jew who wants to marry uh, um, a, a German mm -hmm. and they're both German citizens and you mm -hmm. see the difference uh, between Jews and, and citizens. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the, of, uh, the, the proving yet again of a musical is the only form, the only theater form, performance form that can take unpalatable subjects and make them palatable for the audience. You can't get that in plays. You can't get it in other art forms. Musical theater is the most successful art form of taking unpalatable subjects and presenting them to the people, to the audience, 
in a palatable way. So as Autumn says, it's challenging. It's not, you know, I, I, the word entertainment has a different connotation for everybody. You know, you can get some witless, witless little ditty and that can be entertaining to people. And Hamlet can be entertaining where everybody dies. <laughs> so, so it Just all like depends. Titus Andronicus. It exactly hilarious. A million laughs. One of my favorite plays. Um, <laughs> and he cuts off the left hand, I think. Anyway, never mind. So, um, so I love this musical, and I and and again, I will hold off on talking about some songs. There's a mm -hmm. song there, my favorite song, so lilting, sucks you in, and then you think, I can't be singing this song because of what it's about. Anyway. So yes. I love the music of it. I love the lyrics of it. I love the subtext mm -hmm. of it, the sordidness of it. And um, I guess the last scene is just astonishing to me. Mm -hmm. So there. Yeah. Well done. Well said. Thank you. Uh, Autumn, why don't you give us a plot description? Because I'm sure people have seen the 1972 Lives of Manelli film. But it is a very different plot than what we get on stage. So, and we'll talk about that in detail down when we get to production history. But, Autumn, why don't you give us the basic plot description? Uh, what is this musical about? When, uh, when you started, uh, when we started this episode, I forgot that it was my choice until you so kindly reminded me. So I was not <laughs> fully for this uh, moment, but I will do my best. So, uh, 1930s Berlin, picture it, as Sophia would say. Love um, it. So the Nazi party is growing stronger. Obviously, that is a historical fact. Um, and we start in a place called the Kit Kat Club, which is a cabaret, um, a, a place of, as, as one would say, decadent celebration. How's it spelled? Uh, K-I-T. No, no. Hey, what's what? the what's the and uh, what's the initial of each word of Kit Kat Club? Oh, hey, KKK. Thank you. <laughs> well done. Once it's again, so how this tying American fascism into I didn't Lynn. That's how Prince. Trust me, we'll, we'll we will get into that. That was one of his big angles that he did. So very good. Oh, someone should do this musical right now. So basically the club is, there's a master of ceremonies, the MC. They do this big opening number. Then we flash to a train station where we meet Cliff Bradshaw, who is a young American writer who's coming to Berlin to pen his new novel. Mm -hmm. uh, he meets uh, Ernst Ludwig. And uh, Ernst is a German who befriends Cliff and basically um, throughout there, there are a lot of little snippets in this. So it's, they tie together, but there's a lot of little things that happen. So um, Cliff introduces, um, uh, Ernst introduces Cliff to uh, Fraulein Schneider and he starts to board in her boarding house. And um, they then Cliff goes to the Kit Kat Club and Sally Bowles is there and they meet and they like each other. So they get involved with each other. 
Uh, this is all very, very basic. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, no, no, we're just letting you get the basics here. Like the goalist audience so, know the basics. Yeah, I mean, you know, basically it is about the shaping of their relationship in a time of growing fascism and Hitler's dictatorship in Germany in early 1930s. There is, uh, as Lynn already stated, uh, a relationship between Fraulein Schneider and Herr Schultz. Uh, Herr Schultz runs a very um, ambitious and uh, rewarding fruit market in Berlin and is quite successful and is, uh, has fallen in love with Fraulein Schneider. So it follows their relationship. Um, relationship. They're, they're, yeah, um, because he is a Jewish man at at a time of Nazism. Um, But he is optimistic, which is probably the most painful part of this piece. Well, he he is, I mean, he he represents Germany, where it's that thing of, I'm a German. I was born in Germany. I know these people. And he doesn't see... That's that right. believes that, that, that monster, yeah, 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 exactly. Like he doesn't see the danger that is growing with, under his very nose, and that happened no. with a lot of people. And right. why, why yeah. would he? There's nothing. There's nothing in 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 the history before that that mm-hmm. that has anything that wanted to have an uh, an absolutely pristine race, and mm-hmm. so he is German first. He doesn't, it's not this question of I'm Jewish, etc. He's never been in the position in which he's had to, uh, had to consider his Jewishness before anything else. And we look at it as hindsight being 2020 and we're saying, well, why couldn't you see it? Well, why should he? There's nothing that he has to look for because it's never happened before. Mm. Yes. And I mean, historically speaking, we all have to remember that Hitler had tried to come to power in the 1920s. It failed miserably. Nazism started as a minority party. Right. Until they burned down the Reichstag. Yeah. Blamed it on the other party, which then boosted them into majority power. So like, he, so this whole thing of like, this will just blow over. They're like, why, why, I, I, these radicals are like, are the minority. They're not, they're the fringe. They're not speaking for everybody. And what he okay. didn't, I mean, what he fails to realize is that Germany was hurting after World War One, and the, the Treaty of Versailles basically crippled Germany and created a very, basically destroyed the German infrastructure, uh, as Fräulein Schneider says. So basically, everybody was angry and hurting, and he didn't realize, and he did, and like many of us don't realize, is that when people are angry and hurting, they will turn to extremes to get what they want. And he, oh, Mackenzie, that's fake news. Come on. It's mm. <laughs> no, it isn't. We, we, we do it even now. Tongue in cheek. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and that's the tragedy of him is that he doesn't see what's happening because he, because he is, and, and it's so sad. It is sad. But yes, Dune Romance, Frau Schneider, and, and uh, Air Schultz. Air Schultz. And basically, the MC of the cabaret serves as a satirical commentary of this whole piece as it is mm-hmm. as it is unfolding. Yes, I love this character because he is the fool of the piece, a perfect fool because he is that outside perspective. He is so, a true Shakespearean fool, like a feste. Yeah. He's a feste. 
when we when we when we when we when we when we start talking about the Donmar production and their choices, mm-hmm. I, we'll get to that. Don't worry. Oh, we'll get to that. We will get to that. <laughs> so basically, things kind of uh, Sally Bowles gets pregnant, and um, Cliff wants her to keep the baby and move back to America with him, and she decides that that's not for her and aborts and moves on and like it's not a happy end uh and cliff puts it all in novel form that is really the summation and uh it kind of cycles it back in on itself yes there we go okay so autumn why don't you give us the rundown on who are the creators of this team i mean we've already talked about the main ones, which are Candor and Ebb and Hal Prince. I mean, they are really the creative team. But you said you had some other people you wanted to highlight this time I around. Do. So I'm going to start with the initial source material. Because I think, mm-hmm. you know, if we're going to look at this piece, it has to start where it began. And that started with Christopher Isherwood. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Christopher Isherwood was an Anglo-American novelist playwright, screenwriter, autobiographer, and diarist. Uh, He's best known for his work, Goodbye to Berlin, which then became the basis for Cabaret. Mm -hmm. Um, A single man adapted as a film by Tom Ford, who's not a filmmaker, but a designer. Let's just put that out there. Was based uh, kind of on his life. And Christopher and His Kind, a memoir uh, that was penned, carried him into the heart of the gay liberation movement. The novel itself, The Goodbye to Berlin, is a semi-autobiography of Isherwood's time in 1930s Berlin, and it goes into describe pre-Nazi Germany and the people that he himself met. Uh, the uh, There are six parts to it, Berlin Diary, Salary Bo- Sally Bowles, Salary Bowles, Sally Bowles, <laughs> That'd be totally different. Yeah. Um, uh, on Rügen Island, the Noaks, uh, the Londers, and a Berlin Diary bookend. Um, Isherwood writes of Goodbye Berlin that he liked to imagine himself as one of those mysterious wanderers who penetrate the depths of a foreign land, disguise themselves in the dress and custom of its natives, and die in unknown graves, envied by their stay-at-home compatriots. In a way, in that description, he both becomes the MC and Cliff, which mm. I find very interesting. Um, he's, he's kind of the fool of the piece, that outside perspective, taking it all in and then sharing his findings. Um, George Orwell... Uh, described the book as brilliant sketches of a society in decay. And in her book, Anti-Nazi Modernism, author Mia Spiro remarks that despite that which they could not know, the novel that Barnes, Isherwood, and Wolf wrote do reveal the historical, cultural, political, and social conditions in 1930s Europe that made the continent ripe for disaster, which I found really interesting. So Cabaret and Isherwood's book mostly focus on one character, which is that of Sally Bowles. And Sally Bowles is based on a real human being. And I had to include her in this because 
The character of Sally Bowles does not do the source person justice. <laughs> well, I want to talk about her a little bit. Her name uh, is Jean Iris Ross Cockburn or Coburn. Um, she was a British writer, a political activist, and a film critic. She was a lifelong member of the Communist Party of Great Britain. Um, and during the Spanish Civil War, she was a war correspondent for the Daily Express. Um, she uh, wrote film critics for the Daily Worker and criticisms of early Soviet cinema were later described as ingenious pieces of dialectical sophistry. What? Um, she, like, she was just a phenomenal mind who, um, during her time in uh, Weimar Berlin, uh, she served as a cabaret singer. That is how Isherwood encountered her. Um, and they met and, um, Isherwood was gay, but they had a very unique relationship. <laughs> and, um, she too uh, got pregnant. Uh, so that part of the Sally Bowles uh, narrative is accurate. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Isherwood describes uh, Sally Bowles as divinely decadent. I noticed that her fingernails were painted emerald green, a color unfortunately chosen for it called attention to her hands, which were much stained by cigarette smoking and as dirty as a little girl. Uh, she was dark. Her face was long and thin. He idolized this woman. He saw every detail about her. Uh, she was powdered dead white. She had large brown eyes, which could have been darker to match her hair and the pencil she used for her eyebrows. He just, he really, he really goes into it. They moved in together. They lived in the working class district in Berlin. And of her singing, of Ross's singing, Isherwood says, she had a surprisingly deep, husky voice. She sang badly without any expression, her hands hanging down at her sides. Yet her performance was, in its own way, effective because of her startling appearance and her air of not caring a curse of what people thought of her. Hmm. Kind of sounds like Madonna. Um, I was going to say B. Arthur. No. Husky voice, kind of. B. Like Arthur had, B. Arthur had some ability. <laughs> In a way. In her own, maybe a little bit. Um, so the, the Isherwood pieces were taken by one John William Van Bruten. Uh, who uh, comprised uh, them into a play, I Am Camera. Mm -hmm. And uh, Van Truden was an English playwright and theater director, um, began his career in London and later moved to America. He was known for his plays of witty and urbane observations of contemporary life and society. Candor and Ebb, we know about them from Chicago, but recap, they also did Chicago, Kiss the Spider Woman, The Ring. They're, yes. they're amazing. They do a lot of things. They work a lot with a, a, a certain Liza Minnelli. So there you go. Mm -hmm. And, and yes. 
they work a lot with Hal Prince as well. <laughs> um, Hal Prince, of course, directed it. Produced it. Produced it, directed it. Why not? It's going to be a hit. <coughs> um, the book was written by Joe Masteroff. We have not talked about Joe. No, we have not. Joe was born in Philadelphia, um, and he graduated from Temple University before enlisting in World War II. Uh, he served as a member of the United States Air Force at that time. He studied with the American Theater Wing from 40, 1949 to 1951 and began his career as an actor. Um, he wrote uh, he wrote his first play, The Warm Peninsula, uh, which opened on Broadway at the Hayes Theater in 1959 uh, with uh, Dallas... Uh, famed actor Larry Hagman. In 1963, he wrote the book for uh, She Loves Me by Harnick and Bach, uh, which garnered him a Tony nom uh, and directed by Hal Prince. Uh, three years later, he came to, Hal Prince came to Joe uh, and said, hey, um, I've got the rights to this uh, John Van Troyden play. I am a camera. And uh, do you want to come on board? Ta-da, he did. Um, and it won the Tony for Best Musical, which you're probably going to go into him, so I'm not going to No, don't worry. Yeah, don't worry. We'll talk all about that. Um, his next and final project was 70 Girls 70, uh, which was also a Kander and Ebb success. Wow. Question mark. Never heard of it. So, um, he also wrote the libretto for an operatic adaptation of O'Neill's Desire Under the Elms, and he wrote the lyrics for the musicals of Six Wives. And um, yeah, that's him. Hal Prince. Okay. No, done. One thing we never talk about, and I want to talk about really quickly because it keeps popping up: the choreographer. This one was done by Ron Field. Ron Field was born in New York, New York. Uh, he made his Broadway debut as a child in Lady in the Dark. And he is known for dancing in ensembles of gentlemen preferred blondes, kismet, mm -hmm. the boyfriend. Um, his uh, choreography efforts, Nowhere But Up, Cafe Crown, unsuccessful. But in 1966, he won the Tony for Cabaret. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to um, uh, in addition to this, he was part of the initial creative team of one merrily we roll along but <laughs> later dismissed from the project. And we talked about that. We still don't know why he was dismissed. He was just no. dismissed. No, but he uh, uh, in his time he uh, did cabaret. He did Rags, which I can't wait to talk about. Perfectly Frank, King of Hearts, On the Town, Applause, Zorba, uh, and Nowhere to Go But Up. Wildly successful one. Creative team. Complete. Done. I mean, All right, everybody. the West End and everything, but no, we're not going to do that. Yeah, don't worry. It's okay. Oh. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get into the West End. Um, yeah. There we go, though. Okay, so now light your cigarettes because we got a lot of production history to get through. This is a hefty, hefty show. 
I mean, I went back and reread my lo lovely book called The Making of Cabaret that charts the entire history of making of Cabaret. So we got lots of goodies here that I've picked through. Of course you have like probably a whole library on this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So here we go. So as we said, this musical started as a short 1939 novel, Goodbye to Berlin by Christopher Isher uh, Isherwood. It then was adapted into a 1951 uh, play uh, called, I, uh, called, uh, called I Am a Camera by John Van Druten. Uh, and then prior to 1951, uh, Sheldon Harnick, best known for Fiddler on the Roof, uh, he actually considered trying to adapt the source material into a musical. But upon reading the short book, he went, it can't be done. Maybe you can make a play out of it, but not a musical. Years later, uh, uh, Hal Prince became interested in, in having the play adapted into a musical once he spoke with his team about the material and saw how the project could parallel contemporary problems in the USA. <clears throat> uh, the, uh, there was already an adaption in the works with Sandy Wilson, who had achieved success with The Boyfriend in the 1950s. Uh, and Sandy Wilson was tackling both the book and score and was envisioning it as a star vehicle for none other than Julie Andrews, who had just had great success with her starring in The Boyfriend and was in high demand following My Fair Lady. So, there we go. Uh, I don't definitely do not see Julie Andrews as a Sally Bowles, but that's just me. Um, so, uh, by the time How Prince uh, kind of came along, uh, the, the uh, two-thirds of the score were already done, uh, and uh, producer... Uh, David Black was was already attached to the project and had, and had suggested reworking it. And once he and Hal had heard uh, what Wilson was working on, they found it was basically a repeat of The Boyfriend, because The Boyfriend was also set in the 1920s, uh, but just didn't fit what they were wanting. So Wilson got booted out, uh, sadly, and instead Hal brought in uh, Candor and Ebb to do uh, the music, and the, and then uh, Joseph Masteroff was brought in to do the book, and uh, David Black stepped down as the sole producer because he just found the pressure was too high. So he was like stepping back, gonna share the responsibility, and how Prince stepped up to help be a producer. So there we go. Um, Prince uh, has stated that he was less interested in the Sally Bowles nightclub angle and was much more interested in the social. A political climate of 1930s Berlin and exploiting the intriguing interplay between reality and unreality. Masteroff turned uh, in his first draft of, uh, of the libretto in summer 1963 when the civil rights struggle was really starting to heat up uh, and gain wider recognition in public. Uh, Hal uh, had many development and story meetings uh, with the team to ensure they all got on the same page. The entire team has said it is one of the greatest collaborative experiences uh that they that they had in their careers uh there were several obstacles in adapting uh uh play uh first off the first off the book and the play are, are very thin and sports material so they were kind of like we got a lot of stuff to kind of string together um here um uh Masteroff also felt uncomfortable with writing uh the main character as an Englishman as he didn't understand an Englishman so he turned the Englishman character that Christopher Isherwood 
uh, had created and turned it into an American named Clifford Bradshaw. Because he was like, I can write that, but I can't write English. So there we go. That's how that became that. Uh, also, uh, Masteroff um, really worked to turn Cliff into a active character. Because in previous adaptations of uh, Isherwood's uh, book, um, Cl uh, Clifford, a.k.a. Isherwood's uh, main character, was a very passive, reactionary character, not a um, active one, as we see in this version, where he's actively seeing what is happening in Germany and is trying to fight this situation and trying to help these characters as best he can. Um, the other big thing was that due to the time period of the 1960s, the sexuality of the character of Cliff and his bisexuality was left rather ambiguous and wouldn't really be explored fully until later revivals because the entire team just didn't feel comfortable with tackling bisexuality. So that was the thing. And they um, knew that. Yeah. <laughs> and they knew that, yeah, if they went that route, it probably wouldn't work. So you can't have a hit with sexual deviancy, can you? Well, not in the 1960s when you have McCarthyism and all that shit going on. So. That was the 1950s. True, but it was still carrying over into the 60s. That was still, the Red Scare was still very much there, especially 1963 when we just had the, um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. So that was still very much a prevalent thing. So that whole concept of sexual deviance, communism, it was a thing that people were weary of. Either way, it was a, it was a plot point and theme that was later kind of excavated in future revivals. So uh, Hal Prince's goal was that he wanted the ending to highlight the parallels uh, between this musical in, uh, uh, in, in Germany and the landscape of America with the KKK, representing Nazism, the spiritual bankruptcy of Germany being mirrored in the rise of drugs and free love that was happening on the social scenes in the U.S. Um, and uh, to do this, uh, they thought, well, we're going to show a film reel at the end of the March on Selma, riots, the riots in Central Park, and the Little Rock, Arkansas riots as well. Upon further reflection, Hal thought this was way too heavy-handed and cut that ending entirely because he was like, too propaganda-ish, not what we want, so we can be more subtle. Uh, the second draft of the script of the That's to Sam Mendes. Mmm. Subtlety. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? They, like, like two very different directors that are tackling this work. Just saying. So, yeah. <laughs> so the second draft of the musical was actually in three acts because they were trying to fight the normalcy of the two-act structure. They were trying to make it a little bit jazzy, a little bit different, throw the audience off and making it a three-act um, show. And it, and it featured explicit use of sociopolitical incidents and circumstances uh, for example, included in the act two scene one moment, the MC gives out money to the less prosperous Berliners and sings the song "A Mark in Your Pocket" to reflect the moral that money that money talks in every crucial situation of life. Uh, Frau Schneider was featured very heavily in the third act of this version, and it's where she gives her uh, backstory about how she survived the revolution, the Im the inflation, 
uh, even uh, to, to maybe maybe will even survive the National Socialist Communist fire and flood that are coming to Germany. Um, so that was a thing. Uh, Ebb was uh, had the biggest struggle when it came to creating this piece because 1920s German and cabaret recordings did not come with any lyrics in either German or English, thus preventing him from really kind of figuring out the proper feel for how this music and lyrics should combine to create the sound of the show. Um, as per the usual writing method of Kander and Ebb, they started with the opening number, which is Welcome, or Welcome, uh, and from there they then uh, made songs to order, as Hal suggested different moments to have songs in the show. So, like, he suggested there should be a scene where a brick gets thrown through a window, but we need a song for that brick to crash through. So write me a song to take place in, 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 in a shop where, where a brick's going to be thrown through a window. Thus, they wrote The Married Reprise. Uh, but yeah, Kander Nevin in total wrote 47 songs for this show, but only 15 actually made the final cut. So that tells you how much work goes into creating a musical. There's a lot of trial and error that goes on. Uh, rehearsals began with a three-act version. And in this draft, uh, the Sally and Cliff relationship is far more charming in the beginning. It's very sweet. Um, uh, Sally's big opening number, Don't Tell Mama, is sung directly to Cliff as if he's the only one in the room. It's this very romanticized beginning of their relationship that ultimately still ends tragically. Uh, the final version of the script was reduced to a two-act musical with 13 scenes in Act 1 and, and a much shorter Act 2. Uh, the cuts meant that the Act 2 orators, uh, which were a bunch of silhouettes that appeared and talked and in, 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 in discussed politics and burlesque comedy were cut, also removed was uh, a prostitute desperate for money who was supposed to reflect the economic collapse of the country, um, very much became streamlined, and Masteroff actually prefers this version, while Ebb felt the longer three-act version was stronger. They cut everything that made it distinctly um, Berlin. Yes. <laughs> and they Americanized, Americanized the cabaret in a way. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, so then the key uh, set piece in the original 1996 production, or sorry, 1966 production, was a giant mirror that was hung above the set. Uh, this mirror served many purposes, including being the ceiling for the Kit Kat Club. It also was there to reinforce the cabaret's value as a political metaphor. Uh, this set piece also forced the audiences to be aware of themselves uh, as being not only voyeurs, but also participants in this cabaret world. And it thus, made, It made them complicit. Yes, exactly. It made them question themselves going, if we were sitting in this cabaret in Nazi Germany, would we be any different? Are we just just like them who sat by and watched this uh, ultimate uh, tragedy that was going to take place unfold? So, and funny enough, I didn't think of this, but in the producers, there also is a big mirror that descends during springtime for Hitler. And I wonder if that was another homage to Cabaret, because I, did, I didn't clock that until... I read, we read the book. I don't know if it's an homage or just stolen. Stolen. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to give them credit. Sorry. They do that all the time. The mirror does all the time. All the time? Yeah. 
Dolan. Yeah. Dolan. There we go. There no we go. homage. No homage. No homage. But yeah, Cabaret was the first with the big mirror. It was a thing. Um, uh, so when it came to casting, the first person on their list that they really wanted to get was, uh, then you're probably going to tell me with this name here, but Lati, uh, um, Lena? Lati Lenya. Lati Lenya. Thank you. Uh, and she was the first one signed on as Frau Schneider. <laughs> Hi, Maud. Um, and she uh, was Kander Neb's first and only choice to play the role. So she signed on immediately when their agents like, don't be so freaking eager. Like, you don't have to, like, be so eager about taking this project. It's like, no, I really want to do it. Because she actually was from 1930s Berlin. So she <laughs> acted as their um source where they said like when you're in the rehearsal room if we're not doing something right and you know it's wrong you got to tell us because this is it and she took that job very seriously um the other uh name that came right after her was jack guilford and he was cast as the jewish grocer herr schultz and he was also the first choice for the creative team too so basically they got their two big names right off the top it was uh, Hal Prince who insisted on Joel Gray as the MC. He brought him into audition, and Joel auditioned for the role and immediately caught on to that to the MC character's courage, self delusion, fear, and sadness. And he did all this without bothering to do a German accent or German shtick personality. He just kind of came in raw and just went, "I got it." Uh, for the roles of Cliff and Sally, that proved to be actually much harder to cast. The team saw over two hundred girls for the role of Sally including a very young Tony-winning uh, actress named Liza Minnelli. Uh, Kander and Ebb were in favor of Liza, while, while, while Hal and uh, Masteroff felt that she was too American and not believable as a mediocre British flapper who couldn't sing. So they passed on Liza. Hal had met another actress named Jill Haworth at a kind of soiree party he actually thought she would be it was really interesting actually did two trips to london to meet with her before he flew her back to new york to audition when she got there she confessed she had never actually sung professionally and had even prepared a song for the audition so after much coaxing from the team she sang uh happy birthday and someone to watch over me she only knew the first line of the latter song so Prince sent her back to London saying, you got the job, go and do singing lessons. Um, the, for Cliff, or just, the team... Or just smoke a lot of cigarettes to perfect your husky voice. Well, she had the voice down and people were going to comment on that. Don't worry, we're getting there. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, 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 yeah. Jill Haworth was not the unanimous pick for this role. She was kind of Hal's choice and Hal's particular particular pick so there we go uh for cliff the team went with bert convy who had worked with ebb on morning sun which Ebb had written with paul klein kind kind so then from there with all the leads in place how quickly assembled the rest of the cast and uh when it came to the posters and bill the creative team didn't realize the sensation that joel gray would be in the role so he initially in the original run was bill fifth behind um Jack uh, Jack Guilford and Lottie Lenya. They they were they were the top billed people 
uh, of the of the poster. Uh, so the rehearsals began with a production budget of five hundred thousand dollars, which was easily raised uh, thanks to Hal's successful reputation on Broadway. Hal began rehearsals with showing the cast a centerfold picture from the August nineteenth, nineteen sixty six issue of Life magazine <laughs> that featured a group of blonde males in their late teens who were shown snarling and wearing religious symbols. When he asked the cast where this photo was from, they wrongly guessed it was from, it was from 1928 Munich. In fact, the photo was taken in 1957 Little Rock, Arkansas, during the violent resistance uh, demonstrations of the desegregation of high schools. Uh, with this, Howe proved his point to the cast that human nature does not change despite the lessons of history. It is very true. Yes. But why why don't we want why why can't we change? Because we don't eradicate the problem. What we do is we basically how do I put this? We had World War II. Yeah. We had Nazism. Yeah. We fought it off, but yeah. we didn't eradicate the damn problem. Instead it came to America became and became white nationalism and and became part of the KKK. Lincoln abolished slavery, but then he died. And his vice president didn't finish the job of getting rid of all this slavery and hate. He kind of just placated them and thus was born bigger problems. We don't eradicate these issues. We just kind of beat them back a bit. So it's education. So hopefully, yeah. it's education. We don't educate people to say you don't dislike somebody because their skin color. Mm -hmm. You have to educate you as the song says. Children have to be carefully taught. They have mm. to be taught to 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 think that there's a difference between brown skin or white skin or or beige skin or black skin. If mm -hmm. if you don't have a good educational system, mm -hmm. then you've got that problem. And if you're constantly using somebody as a scapegoat to uh, to uh, uh, um, uh, be responsible for your own problems, then it's never going to go away. Mm -hmm. We're also we're also addicted to fast solutions. Yeah. So we never we you know in all of our our looking forward, we never address things from the beginning. And education is a huge part of it, for mm -hmm. sure. But where can that education begin when there's already bias present? Right. Yeah. We have to we have to as society stop, listen, have empathy for other people's perspectives, continue conversations so we can come to a common ground mm -hmm. and remove anger and guilt. Mm -hmm. Those are not emotions. They are reactions. They're reactions. So, you know, reactions don't drive anything forward. They are just something that stops the conversation and allows us to, as society, band-aid it. I think everyone has the capacity for change. Mm -mm. That is where we need. They do. Everyone has the capacity for change. It's like that woman that was the daughter of Fred Phelps. And she, uh, Fred Phelps of the Basque, uh, Westboro, why can't I speak this morning? Westboro Baptist Church. Yeah, that's right anti-gay like hate hateful rhetoric 
everything. And she grew up as a child holding signs that say, God hates fags. And as she grew, she started to talk to people on the opposite side, one conversation at a time. That's right. And they, she slowly started to see other perspectives and open her mind. And now she is an, an, an advocate. There you go. One conversation at a time. You cannot go into a conversation pushing an agenda. No, can't do that. Because you alienate as soon as you start. That's true. So you just go about your business and be thoughtful and say, and then wait uh, uh, and see what the reaction is. And but continue on. Let's continue on. But I think that given that, you know, one conversation at a time, I think everyone is possible of change. Okay. Even people that I despise, I think. You can have some, you can find some common ground. I think okay. so. Okay. I think so. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm hopeful. Mm-hmm. Autumn is being I'm there. glad. I, I'm glad you're the optimistic hopeful. I just go uh, there with some people who you'll never reach. That's no fine. Matter how, no matter how hard you try. There are some people in the world who you will never get to. And it's because of that, these things still fester because yeah, but those people... Like- but that's villainizing people. That's not that's, giving- not that's honesty. No, it's that's not villainizing. You and I have had this conversation are, many times. There are some people who will change. About they're villain- not villains. They, like, they, like, they, are, they have every right to believe in what they want to believe. But unfortunately, their, their ideas are... But mm. there's ignorance. It's based around ignorance and education and conversation and critical engagement of the world is the only way. And having those things accessible to every single person on the planet of, and, and creating it equally is going to ensure that our society can change. But I don't think people are born evil or born a villain. I think there's very few people that we can deem a psychopath. You know what I mean? Like in a, a like... Mm-hmm. That kind of Nobody's born a villain, for sure. Like, as, like, as Lynn said, you have to be carefully taught. I know. And once you learn those lessons. But some people, I, I learned many lessons in my life, but I was able, like, you just have to remain curious. Autumn, people don't remain curious. As I we get older, that. people. I know. That. And then you're talking to a brick wall. I know, but we're not talking about what actually happens. We're talking about people's capacity and the possibility of change. Mm. Right? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, where was I here? So, yes. Uh, how instructed the cast to shake off any of the assumptions about fascism and guilt and to treat all the characters in Act 1 as having a good time and to avoid becoming melodramatic. He didn't want the reveal and the kind of the darker side of these characters to come through right away. He wanted that to be a gradual reveal. Hence why certain characters are treated as very friendly. Like, what's his name? Ernst. So that was was his goal with these characters and Nazism in this play. He didn't want them coming out on stage goose-stepping. He wanted, uh, like, the Ernst, for example, you don't find out until the end of Act 1 what he really is. Yeah. The first part, he's chummy. Like, he is a good guy. Like, he gets him a place to live. He's... He gets him this little side gig to help him earn a little bit of money. And then he takes off his coat at the end of Act 1 and you see him wearing a Nazi armband. 
Mm-hmm. And now you get a whole new perspective on who he is. And that was the point. It was like that how it was going for it. He didn't want it to be a, he it didn't want it to be uh, char- a, a, a characterized right off the top as these are all Nazis. This will, these people will be bad. He wanted them to be human who slowly but surely fall to Nazism. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't. He j- he just reveals that he's a Nazi at the end of Act One. That's not a slow burn. We don't really get to see his the way he's thinking. So I I think it actually defeated his purpose. It was like he was setting the audience up for this big, oh he's the villain. You know what I mean? Well, that's because the, the villains were innocuous. Mm-hmm. They could be your next door neighbor. I thought that yeah. worked. I really yeah. thought that worked. So. I agree. You're so so Ernst is a symbol. It's not that I I want him to reveal how he came to this or anything else. It's that mindset of thinking um, that you could you could uh, discriminate against somebody because of religion or skin color or anything else, and think that you want a pure Aryan population, mm-hmm. and that would be fine. And the the audience would look at it from hindsight of 2020 and say, that's despicable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so Joel Gray in the rehearsal process brought his real life experiences of watching second rate music hall entertainers to inform the creepiness of his role because he hated these guys. And he was like, I'm going to bring everything I hate about them into this one role. Lenya was a driving force in the rehearsal room. She had, like, unlike a lot of the actors who were requesting repeated rewrites, she was very happy with what she was given. The only time she ever asked for a rewrite was during the song, So What? There was the line, The Abundance of Me, referring to her bosoms. And she went up to Kander Neb and she went, can we please change the slide? Because I don't have the abundance that this character is discussing. So they were like, of course we'll change it. So that's how the line, the uncorseted me came to be. Uh, the final run through uh, before heading off to Boston was attended by Jerome Robbins as, uh, uh, as Hal had brought him in because he valued his opinion in notes. Robbins' big suggestion was to cut all the dance numbers outside the Kit Kat Club as they felt too inorganic and too theatrical. Hal did not act upon the suggestion and, le- and left it as is. Later productions have cut a lot of the dance sequences, like the telephone song and things like that, from future productions, and have kept the, the, the dances more reserved to the, to the Kit Kat Club. So when they got to Boston for out-of-town tryouts, audiences immediately recognized that they were witnessing theatrical innovation. Critics were generally enthusiastic, Except for in the reviews when they did not like Jill um, Hogworth's portrayal as Sally. They felt she lacked magnetism. So she That's got That's the point you want to say to these idiots. That's the point, you fools. Yes. Jeez. Yeah. Well, either way, they didn't get that and they just didn't like her. So she kept getting bashed in the reviews, which took her which hit her really hard like she was really hurt by this because she was putting a lot of work like she really worked at this part and she just kept getting beat down by the by the critics who just were not liking her in this role well um, they, they wanted a traditional musical theater star they wanted liza minnelli they but they wanted someone who's 
could sing and dance and Gwen Verdon. Yeah, they wanted a Gwen Verdon or a you know yeah. whoever. Yeah. Mary Martin, that type of thing. Today it would be a Dina Menzel, uh, right? Yeah, she is definitely not a Sally Bowles. The song "If You Could See Her Through My Eyes" drew protest letters, including from a rabbi who stated the graves of six million Jews were pleading for the show to not do this because of the final line of the song that really brought the ire of these audiences which if you don't know the line it's a very famous line of you go through this whole song of somebody in a a gorilla suit and then the mc at the end goes she wouldn't look jewish at all and audiences all have their jaws dropped to the floor how fought this and thought i'm not going to cow down to the bullying of 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 these of these letters and these people however once the creative team was threatened with potential lawsuits when they got to new york from 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 social groups then how finally made the change and went all right i'll change it and he changed it to she wouldn't or sorry or sorry she she changed it to (coughs) she isn't a mesquite at all which is a yiddish word meskite meskite thank you a meskite at all which is a Jewish word. Lynn, what, what does miskite mean? Ugly. Yeah, exactly. Ugly. Miskite is Yiddish for ugly. Yes. So that's what they changed it to. Uh, following the tryouts, the, that, that is when the change went from three acts to two acts. Eb was so uneasy about this change and worried that they would lose all the good reviews and positive drive they had coming out of Boston with their three-act version. Uh, that he ended up in bed being coaxed and conjoled by both Candor and Joel Gray, saying, it's all right, don't worry, it's going to be okay, people are still going to like it. He was quite worried that they were that this was going to flop because of these changes. You said that, and I just imagine him in bed with these other two guys on either side. Basically, yeah, they were holding his hand in bed. Okay. Yeah. Yep, that's basically that's what it, yeah, that's basically what what it was according to the book anyway. That's how that happened. Uh, during one of the early previews, a lot of audiences got up in intermission and left a nearly empty theater. Eb even heard people out on the street going "taxi, get me out of here," that type of those type of calls, and he really worried that audiences were not going to like this new version of the show. Yet when the show opened on Broadway on November twentieth, nineteen. 66 at the Broadhurst Theater. Uh, it got the show got good reviews. People were happy about it, uh, except for once again Jill Hawthorne's performance as Sally. Walter Kerr described it as the wild, wrong note in a stunning musical. <laughs> so once again, poor Sally and poor Jill. The cast for the for the opening night included Jill Hawthorne, ha, sorry Haworth as Sally. Bert Co- Covey? Convey. Convey as Cliff. Uh, Lottie uh, Lenya as, Frau- as Fräulein Schneider. Jack Guilford as Herr Schultz. Joel Gray as the MC. Edward Winter as Ernst. And Peggy Murray as Fräulein Kost. Yeah, so the show received 10 Tony nominations, including for Best Musical, Best Original Score, Best uh, Leading Actor and Actress for uh jack guilford and um and uh lenya 
Best Supporting Actor for Joel Gray and Ed Winter. Best Supporting Actress for Peg Murray. Um, and Best Director for Hal Prince. The show won seven awards, uh, including Best Musical, but lost for Best Lead Actor, Lead Actress, and Best Supporting Actor for Ed Winter as he lost to Joel Gray. During the show's original run, it was transferred to two other theaters, the Imperial Theater and the Broadway Theater, before it closed on September the 6th, 1969, after 1,165 performances and 21 previews. So a good, a good run. Uh, the show then transferred to London after it opened on Broadway. And the and two big names that auditioned for the role of Sally Bowles were Vanessa Redgrave and Dorothy Tutin. But they lost out to Judy Dench, who initially thought that the request for Howells for her to come in and audition was a joke, as she was not a singer. She was far from the 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 the, the, the big musical theater actress. But he was like, "That's why I want you." That's and he right. Gave her the, and he gave her the book to read. And once she read it, he's like, "Okay, I get it." And so she. Originated the role of Sally in the West End. No use permitting some prophet of doom to wipe every smile away. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. And the show opened on February 28th, 1968, at the Palace Theater. And it ran for only 336 performances. So quite, so a much bigger of a flop in the West End than over in America. The musical has gone on to have several more revivals, including in 1968, there was a London revival, which was directed and choreographed by Gillian Lynn. And then in 1987, there was a Broadway revival, once again, featuring Joel Grey as the MC, but this time he was top billed. So he got his top billing this time around. In 1993, here we go. Now we get to the Donmar London Revival, directed by Sam Mendes and starring Alan Cumming. That's right, Nightcrawler for all my X-Men fans. Um, as the reimagined, highly sexualized version of the MC. And yeah, this production transferred to Broadway in 1998. Once again, featuring Cummings as, as the MC. And... Natasha Richardson as Sally, Vanessa Redgrave's daughter. And yeah, the wife of Liam Neeson. Yeah. Before yeah. she died in Canada, of all places. Yes. In a skiing accident. Yeah. 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 I am. Um, what do you want to say about this revival, Lynn? Or um, Autumn? I, it's just too obvious. It's like someone taking a hammer to your head and going, do you get it? Do you get it? Knock, 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 knock. Here are all the things you need to see. It's like, yeah, no, I no, And I, I, I appreciate that it was overly sexual because that's kind of a, a point um, that should be noted about German cabarets. They, they were, in, they were like the Moulin Rouge was a cabaret mm -hmm. in essence. Right. Well, so, this was the revival that brought that bisexuality and that sexual exploration back into the story. I think they just kind of went a little bit over the top with it. Yeah. Like Alan coming flashing his ass with a swastika on it. And I I like Alan Cumming. Um, it's just there was no there was no subtlety to it. And I'd love to see a version of this that was really subtle. 
Mm. Like more innuendo, more flirtation, more rather than overt grotesque, because that it didn't lend to a purpose. Like it didn't end to this perceived gallow humor. Right. Like if you if you're going to do that, like make it relatable to something today, and put it in as undertones. Lynn. Yes. It was intriguing to me. It's obvious, I guess, because we're looking at it from hindsight. You cannot make this subtle anymore. You have to work with with what the audience already knows, but trying not to make it overt. But I guess, Autumn, you would say that it was overt. Yeah, it it by by doing what they did to the MC at the end. Yes, of course. Well, but but the world crashes in to that safe space. The world crashes into the safe space of the cabaret and all of the deviants are then carted off. Yeah. So he has I mean, a, you know, he's got a pink triangle. And also, I believe he had he a, a communist. He had a pink triangle, well. and he had a, a a yellow star. Correct. So, you know, he's damned both ways. It was three ways because he's also three ways. a communist. That's right, and he was. So it was kind of it was shattering in that way. I'm of course I'm bringing my Jewishness and and everything about this thing. Uh, is upsetting, but I love this musical a lot. Anyway, I I do too. I just think you you defeat the point of a fool by making him part of the bigger, like the bigger systemic problem. I think he is the commentator, not to be put in the center of the action. But but at the end, he became part of that. So. So it's just an interpretation by the by the director, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I, just, I don't like that because it gives me too much. I'd okay. be left going. Fair enough. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Does he pack up? Does he go to Paris? Does he go to America? Yeah. Comes of this this jester of the underworld, right? But but because this cabaret was safe in its own, it was safe. For all of the misfits, all of the people who would not fit outside, everybody is welcome inside. Outside is, we're not even bothering about outside. Well, the outside came in when the, when they, uh, when, you know, when the reality uh, reared its ugly head and the politics of the place were, you know, can, can uh, kick down the doors of the cabaret where nobody is safe now. Well, the cabaret once again, also with it being, it's fine in here. Who cares about outside? It's another apathetic, yeah, character of the show. That by the end, he's in, he's involved. He 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 gets swept up in the apathy of all these characters in the end. Yeah, they all have a part to play in the destruction of this cabaret of this world that they had built. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I would just yeah. say that it's a perceived safety. No okay. person yes, on the edge absolutely. Of it, right? Totally so, agree. You know, I think, the it, uh, of course it was going to explode at some point. But I think by putting him as this commentator and then, you know, 
having him carted off and, and wearing what he was wearing. I just think it's too obvious. I think it's more interesting for the audience to go away and go, I wonder what happened to our fool. Okay. Right. It's All like right. someone made the choice uh, one year at Canadian stage in high park. I forget who it was when they were doing 12th night that Melvolio hung himself. Yeah. And you're like, that's not tragic. That. It's not a tragic ending for him. No. So, yeah. So the revival came to Broadway in 1998. It was very successful. It ran for 2,377 performances, making it the third longest running Broadway revival behind Old Calcutta and Chicago. I have oh, no idea what Old Calcutta. Yeah, I don't know what that musical is. That'll probably be season 20. It's a <laughs> nude, nudist musical. Love it. And then in 2006 and 2012, there were London revivals. And in 2014, there was another revival on Broadway, once again featuring Alan Cummings as the MC. And this time it featured Vanessa Williams as Sally. And she was later replaced by Emma Stone. And now we get to what a lot of people know about this musical, which is the 1972 film version. Starring Liza Minnelli as Sally and Joel Grey as the MC. The film was directed by Bob Fosse. The film made significant changes from the original Broadway musical. In the stage version, Sally uh, is English, as she was in the Ishward uh, book. In the film version, however, she is made into an American. The character of Cliff Bradshaw is renamed Brian Roberts and is returned to being British rather than American. There are new characters uh, and plot lines added for Fritz, Natalia, and Max. Uh, and they were all pulled from the play I Am a Camera. And uh, significantly, the characters of Frau Schneider and Er Schultz are cut as well as their songs uh of so what and uh what would you do and this as well as the song um miskite was also cut miskite Mis miskite thank you miskite was also cut as well i just want to say that i think it's really interesting to make sally in this version american mm -hmm. and cliff british yeah, kind of. Well, it flops it around, doesn't it? I like that choice better because if you're looking at both world wars, there was a great apathy on behalf of America. Mm -hmm. Shocking, mm -hmm. um, you know. And uh, I think I think that is augmented with an American Sally. Yes, I agree. I mean, I do miss in the film version the Air Schultz and. Fraulein Schneider plot. I don't know why they cut it. I've never found a valid reason for them cutting that and bringing in this whole other plot of Fritz, Natalia, and Max. I think the Schneider and Schultz storyline is perfect. Uh, and, is a, and it's a great mirror to Sally and, and Cliff. It's not dancey enough. I guess. Bossy. I yeah, I don't know. I, 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 yeah, but I mean, the film was an immediate success at the box office. Like, it, it, it is one of the most popular movie musicals of all time. Uh, by May 1973, the film had earned in rentals $4.5 million in North America and $3.5 million in other countries, in a reported profit of $2,452,000. Uh, 
It earned 10 Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director for Fosse, Best Actress for Liza Minnelli, Best Supporting Actor for Joel Grey, and Best Adapted Screenplay. The film won all awards but two, which were Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Picture. Which, Autumn, do you know what it lost to? In 1973? Yes. Mm, no. It's my birth- The Godfather. That was the year of The Godfather. So The Godfather took the Best Adapted Screenplay Best Picture Award. I used to I know, they ran off with a couldn't They ran off with my horse head. <laughs> uh, so Cabaret, with its wins, actually set the record for most won awards by a film not to win Best Picture. So there you go. Yes, quite the upset. Uh, yeah, okay, that is production history. It took us a little while to get through it, but there we go. We're done. And now we will hear a quick word from our new partner, Stew over at the Sounds of Broadway radio station. Take it away, Stew. Where can you hear the best music from Off-Broadway, Broadway, and the London stage? The answer, soundsofbroadway.com, your 24-7 online Broadway music radio station. Listen to selections from well-known, popular, and more obscure musicals from the most diverse playlists anywhere. That's soundsofbroadway.com. Let's go on with the show. Thanks so much, Stu, and now back to the show. Now, Autumn, why don't you tell us, how did you first come to this musical? Where did, you, where did your journey begin with this? I, I don't remember after that production history, my memory. um how did i first come to this musical um were you dancing to it's a cabaret with your dance (laughs) life back in the day i certainly did various like versions of this song and shows that we did like uh little cabarets (laughs) (laughs) Uh, like i had no idea what the show was about as a kid but that's when i came to the song Mm -hmm. and then you know being a child we watched the movie still Mm -hmm. didn't understand what it was about Mm -hmm. um it was only later when i started to you know watch different versions of it that I start to understand it. It's not my favorite musical. I don't even think it's no. in my top 10, but I like I like musicals that have meat. a very specific time and place that you can go down the rabbit hole of research. You know what I mean? Like this is a yep. great musical to do dramaturgical due diligence on. Yes, uh, absolutely. So, and uh, I... I uh, yeah, I I think it's, you know, watching the Mendes version that uh, was on YouTube, everyone, you, yes, you can uh, partake in this. Mm-hmm. And I was reminded that it's not my favorite musical. Uh, <laughs> but I, I enjoy, I enjoy some of it. Mm-hmm. I wish it were, a di- I kind of wish it were a different musical. But mm. anyway, Lynn, how did you come to this show? I saw the original. The 1966 version? Yeah. Of course you did. Of course you did. Did you see it with Joel Grey? Uh, more important, I saw it with Jill Haworth. Did you really? Uh, yeah. So so I saw it with Joel Grey and Jill Haworth. <laughs> and everybody complained about her. 
but I thought she was terrific because she is this third rate performer. Don't tell mama, shush up. Don't tell mama, don't tell mama, whatever you do. If you had a secret, you bet I could keep it. I would never tell on you. I'm breaking every promise that I gave her. So won't you kindly do a girl a great big so always, always in this whole history of the show, you have to have a first-rate performer to play a third-rate or second-rate performer. And sometimes you get the, the people who are first-rate and can't, uh, won't allow themselves to bury their brilliance under this second-rate character. So you, uh, so in a case like Liza Minnelli, talented, but the most important and most telling part of Liza Minnelli is that she is absolutely so needy to be loved and liked and thought to be talented and not her mother and all this other stuff that in the, in, in a way, Minnelli maybe is the right in a way, is the right Sally Bowles. But watching Jill Haworth and seeing her absolutely disappear after that and not get any any jobs because, in a way, she was that second-rate... She was that second-rate actress, in a way. Mm -hmm. And so she worked after that, but not in any notable... No, in, in, not in any notable situation. So I, I saw Cabaret. I loved it. I loved the, the, the horror, the, the strangeness, the seduction, the wink of it. You know, here, you know, everyone, every, every, even the orchestra is virg, are virgins. You, you know, go and ask them and you're thinking, Oh my God. Um, I loved all of that. Uh, 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 certainly it was something I'd never seen. I'd never seen something like that. But you you get to uh, become familiar with the world of Hal Prince. And so, you know, I love this musical. Uh, well, I'll say that I came to this um, show really easily where I watched it for film class at York. Yeah. I wasn't blown away by the film, to be honest. Like, I didn't hit me right away. I, I, it's taken on me a little time to fully get into the, what the show is. And now that I have it in my bones, I really want to direct it. But yeah, I mean, I watched the pro shot London revival version with Alan Cummings coming. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, like once I found that 1999 studio recording with Maria Freeman and Judy Dent, I was like, and Jonathan Price, I was like, okay, I found my version. Yeah. So, yeah, that was it. I mean, yeah, it's not a long history. It's it's always been part of my canon. It's never been the show that I've been like banging down the door for. But now that I've done all my research and read about it and done my dramaturgical due diligence, as it were, of my knowledge bank, and now I'm like, okay, now I really got to direct this. Uh, but there we go. Let's head into our top three songs. Lynn, one of the songs is my favorite song. I cannot, I mean, it's Tomorrow Belongs to Me. 
Because that's one of my top three songs. Autumn, and I know it's on your list too, I assume. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Are you asking me my number one song? Well, I'm asking is Tomorrow Belongs to Me on your list of top three. My number one song. Okay. I'm always singing that song at the top of my lungs until I realize, Blotkin, you cannot sing this song because you're Jewish. And uh, the whole point of this song is that they want to fry you and people like you, see? So you're not going to fit into that. And I'm saying, oh, my God, it's lilting. Uh, certainly with the movie by by Fosse, you see this gorgeous, beautiful, young Aryan boy singing that song. The sun on the meadow is The stag in the forest runs free. But gather together to greet the storm. Tomorrow belongs to me. And he starts to sing in a in a soprano voice. The sun on the meadow is summery warm. Blah blah blah. And you're just transported. It's such a beautiful song. Yeah, and and then just for the point of it, and they, the camera pulls back, and you're realizing who this boy is, and it pulls back as everybody is joining in. And you do too, and then it pulls back, and it's horrifying. And then you really? have that one old man sitting quietly in the back. That's not right. standing and singing. I mean, it's so well shot that moment. That's right. And it's, it's, it's a truly horrifying moment. Comes at the end of Act One in the play, yes. in, the, in the musical. always interesting i've seen productions in which uh, uh, herr schultz i've seen a production a kid a, a, a sheridan production actually in which herr schultz is singing the song because oh. he believes he's a german and not a jew and then you have you have fraulein schneider realizing She's got to start to sing the song. This was the production in London, Ontario, directed mm-hmm. by um, um, Dennis Garnham, in which she knows she's got to start to sing that song because her life is going to depend on it. Mm-hmm. And you have Herr Schultz, who doesn't sing the song because he knows what it means finally. So mm-hmm. it's a fascinating, you know, how do you play it? Who knows what? It, uh, who's who's in the game at the time? Oh my God! Fantastic, just fantastic. It was my number two, but yeah, tomorrow belongs to me. I love this song. I've been sing- I've been singing it 
all week my sister's been getting annoyed by it because I'm humming it as I'm working around yeah. the house or the condo. And it's a fantastic song because it tricks the audience. That's true. It comes out of nowhere in the first act, the first time, not the reprise. The very first time it comes out of nowhere. And it sweeps the audience up in the swelling music of patriotism and nationalism. There is only one other song in the musical theater canon that is akin to this on this scale. What is it, Mackenzie? I don't know. Oh, One Day More? No. No. What? Old Red Hills of Home. Ah, yes, I can. Yeah, that makes sense. Once again, Mm -hmm. Al Prince. They are propaganda songs. Yeah, they totally are. They that try, try to show the other perspective in a Mm -hmm. light. Mm -hmm. And I think it is magnificent for that reason, because, you know, if you, you know, if you read about. Nazism. They were huge, you know, supporters of classical music. Mahler, Beethoven, like it was part of their, you know, something they did, right? And this idea of sweeping beautiful music Mm -hmm. as a propaganda piece is phenomenal. I think Mm -hmm. it, and it, it, with the mirror on the audience, and we're like, oh, that's so nice. Oh, that's so dark. Right. That's right. It's that it is a it is a mirror to what drives us into a certain system. Yes. Um, and the power of me- certain things to to change our mind, mm-hmm. especially if we are apathetic as a society. Mm-hmm. Yes. That you, we teeter on change all the time. So, uh, I. For that and that alone, I mean, it's a beautiful piece of music, but the political ramifications behind it are are very much akin to Old Red Hills of Home. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, I get it. Mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah. Uh, which is terrifying. Yes. I mean, for me, I also like it because, how do I put this? <laughs> it's interesting by like who sings it because if it's sung by another character who's not a Nazi and it's just taken as a patriotic song, it's okay. Which is why when Lynn go, which is why when Lynn, when you say you sing it, I'm like, well, you can sing it. You just don't have to wear be wearing a Nazi armband. No, I can't sing it because I am the subject of, of the who they don't want to sing in that the plot. Song. And uh, that's yes. true. Um, yeah, yeah. And in the plot of the show. You, as a, uh, what they're talking about but if you take it out of the show and just have it on its own I think it totally it's a fascinating song where, where it can be sung by anybody like, yeah you- and I think and and certainly when uh, Fraulein Kost yes 
starts. Does she start it or she, she does start it? No, she no, does she start it because she outs Air Schultz as a Jew to get That's back right. at Schneider, and then she starts the song when 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 Ernst is about to leave the party. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. it's oh, it's such a great song, and the fact that it's so good, yeah, because people uh, who heard it actually thought it was a real German nationalism song pulled from that time period and actually got angry at Candor and Ebb for it. And we're like, yeah, why are you using this actual propaganda song? Like we wrote the damn song. We wrote the song. Deal with it. Idiot. Yeah, exactly. Never mind. People people took it so literally because it's so well-written. Like it is. That's why, that's why it loses its power and can't be taken out of context. I know. I know. Thank God. Hills of home should never be done without the container of that musical yeah well you can't do without the container of that musical i mean this is i mean i also just like because i i call this a dark version of one day more where at the end of act one these characters all stand along the front of the stage and go and go tomorrow belongs to me and we're gonna go get this tomorrow and it's like yeah oh, I know what your tomorrow is and I am really scared of it. But it's this declaration of, yes, seize the day. And it's like, what day are you seizing here? Because it ain't going to end well for a lot of people. It's an anthem. It's a a anthem anthem of of a new patriotism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it it serves its purpose. It's Mm -hmm. fantastic in that. It serves its purpose. Mm -hmm. And as we walk away... To our drink and intermission, we are left to reflect the power of that song and how, I mean, I am anyway, how easily I am, it's stuck in my head. Oh, it's still stuck in my head. I was humming it this morning. Why is that the one song? And if that song has that much power, what can sway people? It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Well said. Autumn, what's your number two? If you could see her through my eyes. If you could see her through my eyes, you wouldn't wonder at all. If you could see her through my eyes, I guarantee you would fall like I did when we're in public together. I hear society more. But if they could see her through my eyes, maybe they'd leave us alone. Oh, okay. That made my other list. Really? Really? Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah, and I have reasons for it. Like, I, 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 but Autumn, you go first. Um, I think this is the one song that actually stays very true to what a German cabaret was. Mm-hmm. Fair. It has that very dark humor. Mm-hmm. It's unsettling. Um, and if you had asked me this question, you know, a year ago, I would have been like, oh, no, that's I, I hate that song. That's not on my list. But the more I read about German cabaret and its purpose, I, I just think that it is so overt, but it's satire. It's ugly. It's dirty. It's and I think that the original version of this 
challenges the audience to acknowledge and address their bias. Mm. You know, when they change the word to miskite, did I say it right? Yeah, miskite. Okay, good. Um, miskite, people, it loses its, its, it loses power. Yeah. I can understand why people would think it uh, is anti-Semitic. I absolutely mm-hmm. understand that. So I understand, you know, rabbis, you know, protesting. But I think in the container of the musical and the cabaret itself, it's very powerful. And if you have an engaged audience that is aware of what's going on, it's going to make them address their own systemic biases. So for that reason, I mean, it's not a, it's not a really hummable tune, but I also, uh, I like the MC. The MC for me, I want the show to be about the MC. I don't care about Sally Bowles. I don't care. I don't, I don't like her as a character. Mm-hmm. Not a fan favorite. Mm-hmm. She can't sing. She's not like, she's apathetic. I hate apathy. It's the one thing I can't stand in the world. So but in the context of that musical, she mm. works. I know. It's you just know, much of her. Like, there's just a lot of her. But she represents everything in that world that is going to be the reason for why this happened. I know. And, and, and for me, like, watching her is like watching the world. And it, like, I'm not an apathetic person. So sitting there and being reminded of it is not my cup of tea. Okay. I mean, the reason why it makes my other list, though, is because the final line is is, is, is the punch of that song that that she wouldn't look Jewish to me. That punch line. I understand your objection. Hmm, I grant you the problem's not small, but if you could see. She wouldn't look Jewish at all. Audience, it's it's not a surprise anymore. Audiences know that line is coming. And because that punch is no longer there, and we've had these two great moments of the end of Act One with the Tomorrow Belongs to Me reprise, and then we've just had the married reprise that ends with the brick being thrown through Air Schultz's mm-hmm. uh, window. The anti-Semitic tones of the story mm-hmm. are already being well told. You this know, song now feels like a sledgehammer where it's like, do you get it? Do mm-hmm. you get the, do, do, do you get what we're trying to do here? Like it's mm-hmm. like it now just feels almost redundant because we because now you're beating this topic into me versus this nice subtle undertone of the story but that's but that's what the mc's job is the mc's job is to create this black comedy um container in the cabaret which is a satirical look at the rest of the world and yes we know what happens in the holocaust we we all know what the horrific uh things propelled against you know Many different people, um, Jewish people, gay people, communists, 
uh, yeah. certain people uh, of uh, Polish people, right? Yeah. We yeah. know we a twin, like it goes on and on. It does. Um, the, the horrors of that. But I don't think that we can ever forget it. We must no. not forget it. So this, yes, we know what's happening, but it's one more reminder in a different form mm. that is put in front of us that if we didn't get the subtlety, I'm going to smack your face with it because mm. you know what? We're not, we today are not any better. We are not any better. We talked about this earlier at nauseum why we are not, but we are not any better. So any chance um, is a good idea. And I, I, I really, that's, I, and I keep going back to that. I'll keep going back to that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I get that. I totally do. I just go, people are out waiting for the punchline. They're not surprised by it. So the fact you're, that now it's become that thing of, oh, they said the line versus, you, you, oh my God, what did they just say? You don't know that. You cannot speak on behalf of who knows what is coming. There are a lot True. of people who don't know that. I mean, how many times have we gone to see the Merchant of Venice Mm -hmm. No matter where we see it, and mm -hmm. when they come to the courtroom scene, the guy says, the 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 judge says, okay, you've got to live your life like a Christian. And to hear the gas of this audience, no matter where I've seen this play, whether it's Stratford, whether it's Stratford on Avon, whether it's the Globe Theater, whether it's in New York, whether it's in Chicago, wherever True. I've seen this play, there is a gasp as if people have are, are, are totally astonished by that. So we can't, sure. you know, we, we don't actually know what's, you know. Yeah, that's fair. That is yeah. totally fair. I mean, it's still, a, it's still a very good song. I just find it a little bit redundant. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I, 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 I just like a little bit more of the subtle nature of, yeah. of, of, of that undertone of the story versus yeah. the flump that that number gives you. Mm -hmm. Either way. Lynn, what is your number two? Um, I love Willkommen. Because ah. it it sets up perfectly this musical. It mm. um, it uh, welcomes you in. It's very seductive. It's charming. It's accommodating. We'll accept you in any way you want. We're just going to mm. be great. And then you see the sordidness of it. You see the emaciated women uh, of the orchestra who are in torn clothing or torn 
stockings and and they look like they've gone through the ringer backwards, either because they're strung out on drugs or sex or whatever. And you see the subtext come in from that song that I think it perfectly sets up everything we're going to see about this show. It's one of the most iconic openings in musical theater. Cause it yes. And it changed musical theater too, because it was one of the first shows to not have an overture. It starts That's with right. that opening drum roll, slide, symbol, bang, and then seven seconds of silence. And then it's that spotlight on the hand doing the, yeah. Come on in. Brilliant. I, 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 the song didn't make my list, but it is one of the great iconic openings okay. of musical theater. It made my list. I was just going to say it probably made ours. And uh, it made my list because it is an invitation uh, for us as an audience to allow ourselves to do something perceived as other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We are going into a place in our own safe way. Yeah, with our without consequences. Mm-hmm. Without consequences. We are, in essence, uh, the voyeur at a peep show. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, brilliant. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that almost makes me feel dirtier. Mm. <laughs> Especially with that big mirror hanging there that you can see yourself you know, in. But yeah, like... Uh, I, I think it's, I think it's really interesting because it also says you're coming into our world mm-hmm. and in our world, apathy is not, you cannot be apathetic when you leave. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you missed it, idiot. Right. Mm-hmm. So my number two is actually a pair song. It is the Frau Schneider songs. So what? For the sun will rise and the moon will set And you learn how to settle for what you get It'll all go on if we're here or not So who cares, so what? So who cares, so what? When I was a girl, my summers were spent by the sea So what? And I had a maid doing all the housework, not me so what? Now I scrub up the floors and I wash down the walls and I empty the chamber pot. If it ended that way, then it ended that way. And I shrug and I say, so what? And what would you do? Grown old like me, with neither their will nor wish to run. Grown storm in the wind what would you do yeah don't i couldn't include one without the other because they are perfect bookmarks to each other because she highlights the point in dangerous view of her stance in the world where in act one you have this great opening number of 
so what where she show where it shows how she's internalized this cold facade and outside view of the world being an outsider all the time and just kind of taking life as it comes at her with that the sun will rise and the sun will set and you get what you get like so what like it's that thing of very apathetic not caring viewpoint of the world she's taking it as it comes at her she's a survivor Mm -hmm. um but then you get to act two where now that's being challenged with her with her happiness with airs with air schultz and so then you get the number of what would you do where it's this tragedy of do you fight for for your happiness or do you just continue to go with the flow because if you go with the flow you'll survive Mm -hmm. but will you ever be truly happy right if you're just kind of living not actually living mm-hmm. yeah and i mean i'll say like listening to her what would you do song reminds me a lot of the song from the sound of music of no way to stop it and there's no way to stop it no there's no way to stop it and i know though i cannot tell you why that is long and long just as long as i'm living there'll be nothing else as wonderful where yeah. Max and the Baroness are, are saying, you don't have to bow your head to, to the Nazis, just stoop a little. Like, yeah. Like, get through it. Like that, like that's the goal here. It's not mm-hmm. like it's survival. It's and, and it's she's a fascinating character of apathy and the result of apathy, where by the end she's left alone. And she is living, she's living and surviving, but really not engaging in life. She's not living. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. She's exactly. Yeah, she's just there. Yes, she's there, and it's a. Fa- I, I love these two songs. It's it, they're a great pair of songs. That that's a good really. That, yeah. See, no shtick. What's your third choice, though? Do you want to know it now, or, 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 or I guess already, we could do because we're on. We've already done ours, all three. Right. Have you done your three? You've done Tomorrow Belongs to Me. Welcome. What's your third? Cabaret. Oh, Lynn hasn't done hers. Mine was If You Could See Her Through My Eyes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, Lynn, mine also was Cabaret. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, it sums up everything and, and it's mm-hmm. full of irony and, mm-hmm. and, and, and because it comes at that point, we know that it's irony. We've seen it. It sums everything up. It might be the obvious, but it mm-hmm. sums everything up and it puts it in an ironic way. And mm-hmm. I think that's fine. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for me, I like it because it's this mix of triumphant defiance and sad realization of defeat yeah where sally is like screw the world screw cliff i got my abortion i'm gonna live my life it's probably gonna lead me to an early grave but screw it like i'm gonna do me and she takes it on the chin and And? she's like nancy and oliver with 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 as long as he needs me where it's that i don't care what the world says i'm going i'm going down this road 
no yeah. matter that, no matter that it probably leads to my own destruction. Mm-hmm. Or even Avida with, with with her final lament song, where it's like I chose the life I live. No, like, Avida, I would say, is different from the other women. Mm. Uh, Nancy is deluded. Uh, yeah. Sally is deluded. Sally would go to a COVID nineteen party, COVID nineteen mm. party, and think, "Oh, I, it's it doesn't matter if I get sick." Yes. Go to hell, stupid yeah. woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, you just. So I don't think she's like Nancy at all. No, she is surviving. Sally is not surviving. She's selfishly moving through the world. Yeah. She is uh, the. But they both well, make I, that same choice of no, ensuring they, their own destruction. No, no. Nancy has hope that he will change. He has because he needs her. He needs her, and in essence, that is her purpose to try to change him. Domestic disp- d- abuse is not the same as selfish behavior. And Sally Bowles is, and that is why I detest this character. I think, uh, fine, she serves a purpose in this musical. Great, she is a metaphor for almost 99.9% of our population. Mm-hmm. But um, we cannot compare the two of them. And we cannot compare Avita Perone, who was one of the most driven people. Even the dog is piping and singing. Exactly. Not a thing. You're right. She is. She's holding the parties. Where people don't, she is an anti-masker. Me, 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 me. Look at me. I'm putting my. Do you know who she is? She is the woman who threw the lawn chair off of her balcony. That's right. And thought it was funny. <laughs> she is, and thought it was funny. And you know what? A stupid, dumb waste of time and and uh, Botox and liposuction or whatever it is that she's got in her lip. But fair enough. I agree. You know what? I changed my stance that Sally is not like the Nancy or Evita. No, no. But the song, I still love this song because the audience cheers at the end. Not, I don't know if they fully realize that what they're cheering for is Sally's demise. Exactly. Where's that thing of, yay, great singing. But then it's like, wait a minute. You just said you're off to go die like your friend. Like, like you've just chosen your, your death warrant. Never, nobody ever said an audience was smart. (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of a prolonged suicide note yes yeah. and it's she's giving up in a way yeah it's not funny and it's not something we should sing out of context mm-hmm. how many children sing this at kiwanis music festival too many right but it's not like it's i i remember singing it when i was young and i'm like when I go, I like I'll go like Elsie. Like Elsie, yeah. I'm like an overdose. I don't, really. Yeah. Wow. This is great. This is, and in that moment, as a child, I remember thinking, "This is not my song to be singing." Yeah. I mean, so yeah, cabaret. I mean, there's one other song that made my cut and skip list, and for me, that was the telephone song and telephone dance. I mean, it's being cut from the 1998, 2012, 2014 revivals. 
and replaced with Mine Air. Um, and I just think that it's just a little too theatrical and out of place, like this whole dance around the telephone routine. Mm-hmm. I think I I think like the, that that nineteen ninety three revival where it's just a phone call conversation. Cut the dance, cut the music, works just fine. It, it I, 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 part of me goes, Jerome Robbins is a little bit right here, where having these big song and dance numbers outside the Kit Kat Club don't fit this world. If the song and dance is with the MC inside the Kit Kat Club, it works. If it's outside, not so much. And this telephone dance is part of that outer world dance routine where I'm like, yeah, you can cut this. It's okay. Not needed. You don't need it. Um, uh, Cabaret was on my auntie list. Mm -hmm. Ooh. Yeah, I don't like it. I I don't like her. I don't like Sally Bowles. I don't. Oh, God. So did you also not, not want maybe this time? Everybody. No, because that actually gives her a little bit of depth. It's not, I don't want, but it comes from nowhere. I know. The, it all, comes of, from, I, all of her, I just, I, it wasn't on either of my lists. Um, did you have other songs on your auntie list, Lynn? Uh, well, I had maybe this time because it suggested a conscience, which she doesn't have, and some kind of an attitude outside of her own world, which we I don't care about. Um, uh, 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 what else? Um, uh, I, I would, it's hard to tell because there are so many that I just don't care about. And, um, uh, like perfectly marvelous to me is one of those songs. Like, yeah, perfectly marvelous. And now this wild, unpredictable girl. And this perfectly beautiful man will be I you know that can that can go. The telephone song, of course. Yeah. Um even the pineapple my- song. No, you've got to keep the pineapple. You you do need the pineapple. It's a love letter. Uh, Mine hair, possibly, you know, that kind of stuff. You know. This might be contentious. Yeah. I have I Don't Care Much. Okay, I yeah, that's fine. It's that, one does, that was never stuck so, with me. I can remember it really. 
Uh, you don't need it. And the MC is not here to lull us with a ballad. That's yeah. true. Like, that's not your role. And if mm-hmm. you are, it's got to be, uh, there's got to be something weird to counteract it. Yeah. Like, it's just mm-hmm. Ellen Cummings standing there. I don't. We know. That's why you're there. <laughs> no, but you know does. that's why you're there. That's why you're in the in the cabaret because you don't care. But I don't. I don't think he's that person. I think he does care, and I think the fool always cares. We find but, out at the end, though. But no, but we. I don't want to find out at the end about all of his things. Okay. I want him to just be a solid outside perspective. Okay. Right. The the keen observer, like a fool should be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fair. Fair. Uh, is that it, everybody? Or do we get yes. through all the songs? I think so. All right. Uh, Lynn, kick us off. Does this musical still have a place today? Should it be revived again? Uh, I think it should be revived somewhere in the world every single day. Mm-hmm. It has Agreed. resonance. It is about the other. We are mm-hmm. always, always, always marginalizing the other. We are yeah. always... Uh, demanding our place in the world. We're always, you know, we're always doing all of that stuff. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think, yes, I do believe that this, this play, this show has resonance all the time. Certainly mm-hmm. even, as I said, with Sheridan in which you, how do you play it? Do you have, will you, do you, uh, do you have, uh, Herr Schultz knowing what's going on? Do you have, Frau Schneider knowing what's going on and singing Tomorrow Belongs to Me. There are so many decisions that you have to make. Uh, I think it has terrific resonance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Agreed. Autumn. Yeah. I, I think we should I think we should do this. I think, you know, the problem with cabaret right now is that it's become such a part of our uh, vernacular in the musical theater world that we get stuck thinking that we know it. Mm. And I think it needs a revisitation and a revival that looks deeper. Like I, I have to say, after reading everything about the Hinton production, at least there was something new mm-hmm. with it. And mm-hmm. I do think it's an important piece to continue to explore. Mm-hmm. I don't think we need um the same old production of it because it gets it gets a little tired it needs a little bit of a reinvigoration Mm -hmm. next big revival right we need to we need to look at why we're doing it and the effects on contemporary society i think i i do think it i think it has a place i think you know, it should be done in a season where you explore propaganda and put in parade at the same time. Mm-hmm. Sound music, right? <laughs> like build a season thematically and then have conversations in your administration, you know, about affecting change. Do it with your audiences and talkbacks. Mm-hmm. Like we have to start engaging audiences in the conversation rather than just making them viewers at a peep show. Yeah. That is, uh, and I think that is where the missing link is for me with this one. A lot of people just go to see a musical and don't leave 
thinking about it the way that they should think about it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes. And you can, t- and that sounds like a very general statement. Perhaps it is, but it's, it's too popular to not make that assumption. Mm-hmm. Fair, fair, fair. Uh, I will say yes, absolutely. A revival is warranted. Um, yeah, I mean, the show is the result of people ignoring the signs of danger in their community. Mm-hmm. It's about people being apathetic. And no matter where we are in the, in the world and in time, we need to be reminded, because as Autumn's pointed out, we are a very apathetic race of people who don't heed warning signs hence why we had the 2016 election and this is coming up before the inauguration of uh in 2021 uh so i we don't know what the results of the 2020 election are yet but if you're watching the democratic convention one of these big themes that they're trying to engage people with is don't be apathetic get out and vote mail in your ballot do something work as a pollster do anything to get yourself out there and and be a part of 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 this world don't just sit by and and go it can't get any worse than what it is now because it can always get worse if you think you hit rock bottom there's another freaking bottom and it's and it's not just happening in america it happens everywhere it happened in canada it's happened in britain we have dictatorships currently in like Russia and yes. China overthrowing Hong Kong. And, yes. you know, it, it's hor- it's horrifying. Yes. It's, it, like an apathy is uh, apathy and navel gazing is mm. what led us to this point. Yes, exactly. And, and that's why this musical needs to be done. Like I was talking to my mother last night who doesn't really know this musical. And explaining it to her, and she actually became really interested in it because I was like, "This is what it's about," and she was like, "Oh, okay, this interests me now." So when I get a general audience member to go, once you explain it to them, and don't just treat it, don't just treat the show as a classic of, 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 of the Broadway canon, and actually give it some resonance and give it some oomph, and and actually do your dramaturgical due diligence, you can really pack a punch with this show. So that's why I agree with Autumn that it should be redone and needs to be re- it needs to be reevaluated. Don't just bring back Alan Cummings to redo the same production again. Uh, and with Lynn, like there's so much for a director to pick and choose with. Like there's so many choices you have to make, and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm really excited to direct this at some point in my life because there are choices to make that just are that affect one thing that affect another thing that you have to do in the show, and it is. Wonderful. This is a great piece of theater that really gives you a lot to play with. Mm. It has a lot to say and it's a great reminder to the world of we all go Nazi isn't bad, awful. We should never have that happen again. Never forget. But then we all sit by and watch these events happen again and again and again. So they're happening here. That it happens everywhere. It doesn't matter where you are. America, Canada, Britain, Russia. Hong Kong, China, all our listeners in the world. Don't be apathetic. Get out and vote. Be part of your community. Be part of your world. Have one conversation at a time. Uh, Don't go into the conversation trying to change somebody. Mm -hmm. Have a conversation to take interest in somebody else. And then together you can affect change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's it. And you know what, Mac? You said something earlier about your mom. I want to give, this is the time 
I am going to give a happy 2021 to Mackenzie's parents who crafted such a beautiful human being. But I wish every parent went through the world like they did. Like my parents do too, but you know, we, we you know, uh, your parents just educated you as mine did in such a wonderful way to keep exploring the world and their curiosity is astounding. And I love that about them. And, you know, your parents, my parents, uh, I, I try to model that when I'm parenting because, you know, we can, we are really privileged to be able to sit here and talk about these things. Mm-hmm. And every child, every person deserves that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Have critical engaged, critically engaged conversation. Mm-hmm. Yes, critically engaged. Mm-hmm. And that's what this musical should do if done correctly. It will make you critically engaged and have that bigger conversation. Yeah. If done correctly. If it's just done for show and for schmaltz, then you've missed the point of what how Prince was really trying to do because that's what he was trying to do when he first set out to do this show. He was not interested in Sally Bowles and the Kit Kat Club. He was interested in how this show really was a great mirror to reflect the world. So take that well, as you will. And the world that he was living in at that yes. time. And, and yes. the prejudice that America was facing. Mm-hmm. I think the, that the Kit Kat Club is very, I never knew that. And now I am completely fascinated and overwhelmed by that mm-hmm. and want to go read. Yes. There you go. All right, everybody. So Thank that's you. it for this episode. We're now third episode into season three. Uh, yeehaw. We're off and running now. Uh, thank you once again to our brilliant theme music composer, Mr. Brody Weld, who continues to create wonderful hip hop tracks and all other great music. I'm sure by now he's had a lot of other stuff come out. Uh, but right now we have for him to plug for him, his song home decor, his rap album and household furniture. <laughs> he has a whole bunch of other ones too, but that's the one that just keeps coming up <coughs> every time. Lynn, where can people find you and read all your wonderful writings? Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, they can go and listen to, uh, CIUT Friday morning, 89.5 FM. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that, my, that show is, uh, on Friday mornings, nine to 10 at 89.5 CIUT 89.5. And usually I'm at the theater. Love it. Love awesome. it, love it, love it. Uh, yeah, and we can't wait to get back with our next show. In the meantime, though, check out our Facebook uh, page, Instagram page, and Twitter pages all at Before the Downbeat, uh, where we post clues about the upcoming episode, as well as fun facts about the uh, on the week of the episode. So you get a nice, full-rounded picture of what we have to offer. So, and be sure to engage with us. I mean, on our Insta stories, we always post a poll question that you can respond to. It's always great to see how people respond to those. So yeah, have fun with that. Check out our Patreon page where we give all types of extra goodies like uh, monthly theater news reviews, top 10 lists, movie musical commentaries where, hey, maybe we actually will watch the film Cabaret and do a commentary on that. Who knows? So go check that out. Autumn, where can people find you? Most places at Autumn DM Smith or... Mm -hmm. 
My company name, Little Wood Smith. Yavul. Uh, and you can find me at all social media platforms at Mackenzie Horner. And you can find me doing all types of online stuff with Cup of Hemlock Theater. So be sure to check that out. Find me, Red Hair Guy, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just look for the ginger guy, Mackenzie. Other than that, thanks, everybody. Uh, and we will see you next time. Remember, don't be apathetic. Get out there. Be part of your world. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.